difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Genevieve Kosky, Keith Phipps. And Tasha Robinson. On last week's episode, we talked about Terrence Malick's debut feature, Badlands, a period piece about a teenage girl and an older man who go on a shooting spree across the heartland of America. That description more or less applies to the new Luca Guadagnino film, Bones and All though the two are more like-aged and have a more compelling rationale for killing people. Opening in 1980s Virginia, the film stars Taylor Russell as Marin Yearly, a 17-year-old who lives with her overprotective father in a run-down trailer, only the latest in a long series of different homes. After slipping away for a sleepover one night, Marin surprises her friend and herself by gnawing off most of the girl's finger, realizing a cannibalistic impulse that she had suppressed. On her 18th birthday, her father suddenly abandons her, leaving her a tape recording that explains her condition, which first became apparent to him as early as when she was a toddler. Now left her own devices, Marin stumbles into another quote-unquote eater, a much older and frightening man named Sully, played by Mark Rylance, who tries to teach her more about her condition. But when she grows suspicious of him, Marin strikes out to the Midwest, where she meets an eater named Lee, played by Timothy Chalamet. The two of them have a strong connection, but their future together and apart is in question. Can they really trust each other? How can they keep doing what they need to do and live with themselves? We'll puzzle through those questions and many more after the break. So you can't spend the night? Not all night. So where'd you move here from anyway? Eastern Shore. Try that. You have to be good and gone. I can't help you anymore. I know it's not your fault. You were born this way. You ate them. I believed you had to. I don't know why. I smelt you. I didn't know I could do that. I thought I was the only one. I don't want to hurt anybody. Famous last words. There are lots of us. I don't actually meet many others. Why did you offer to bring me along? You seem nice. I am nice. I came looking for you. I smelled you. You can smell me half a mile away. Can you do that? Not that far. I got rules. Never, never, ever ate an eater. I thought you might be hungry. Friends. No. All right, so I'm super curious because I, I know what Keith thought of this film because he, he wrote about it for us, but I, I wanted to know uh, what everyone else thought of Bones and All. I saw this movie at Fantastic Fest knowing very little about it. It was well before it was really out there. And the description of it in the program was so elliptical that it kind of read like one of those films that is just becoming more and more common at film festivals that turns out to not really be a horror film, but is something that 
is trying to be sold a, a little bit as a horror film in order to get butts in seats. And I was so deliriously uh, happy about the reveal. I kind of regret that we even like brought up what happens in this movie. I tried to avoid that as much as possible, even though it's out there as, you know, the cannibal romance with Timothy Chalamet. It was just the whole thing was just a voyage of discovery for me. And I really, really enjoyed the process of finding out alongside the characters all of the stuff that they didn't know about, uh, finding out along with them and finding out exactly how much of a horror movie, exactly how bloody and gory this movie is, is just a complete surprise. I really enjoyed this movie. I, it's on my top 10 of the year as of this moment. We're still a week out from final voting and, and there's a lot left to watch, but that, that'll just tell you like right now, at least in the moment, how I'm feeling about it. I think the performances are great. I think the storytelling is, is pretty fascinating. I think it's got some of the most exciting cameos I've seen in a, a movie in 2022. Uh, I hope we can we can talk about those a little bit, but I, I was very bullish. I'm really curious about how Genevieve took it, considering we kind of <laughs> talked about her aversion to certain kinds of horror, where this fit in for her. Yeah, I had like pretty much the exact opposite experience of, of Tasha as far as like sense of discovery with this movie, because not only did I sort of interview you, Tasha, about Fantastic Fest and listen to what you had to say about Bones and All on a, a bonus episode over on the Patreon which if you're not a subscriber, you should subscribe so you can go listen to that. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I heard, you know, a, a spoiler free kind of description of, of what it was. So I had that context. And when we decided we were going to do this pairing, everyone I think was uh, lightly concerned for for me <laughs> and, and how I would uh, <laughs> handle it given my, my noted aversion. But you know, uh, uh, Scott gave me uh, tips on, on when to cover my eyes. And uh, for the most part, like I was I was totally fine. Uh, with this movie as far as like the quote unquote horror aspects of it. I don't think it's a horror film at all. I, I agree with you there, Tasha. I think it resists genre. You know, it certainly has moments of gore and shock, which I, you know, was was suitably braced for. But in between, it's really kind of a it's a coming of age film again, uh, very much, which I, I tend to like. And I did appreciate it more as a story about Marin than a relationship story. I found myself a little cool on the relationship between her and Lee. I don't know if it's Chalamet, who I, I wasn't in love with in this role. Like I think he was fine, but I also feel like many other actors could have done something just as interesting and maybe more so with this role. But Marin's story and that performance and sort of her self-discovery appealed to me a lot more. I thought the character of Sully was 10 times more interesting and terrifying than anything else in the film and both wanted more of him and also did not want any more of him. <laughs> uh, I agree that like there's lots of really strong and interesting supporting performances slash characters in this movie. And I do think that Marin's story isn't a strong enough backbone to make it a a successful film. But I feel that sort of as a, you know, a, a love story, it didn't quite, you know, reach the the highs for me that it maybe did for other people. I think that's fair to say. I, I like I like this film a lot, but the point where Lee leaves like in uh, probably like three quarters away through the movie, I actually thought 
maybe we were done with that character because mm-hmm. I thought maybe that relationship had run its course. I actually do really like the part at the end, the sort of like, let's be humans for a while section yeah, yeah. of it. Uh, in I think Ann Arbor. That's, that's, yeah, in, in, in Ann Arbor, but probably filmed in Cincinnati, right? Yeah. Um, I think most of the film was. <laughs> to me, I think that's kind of a problem in the sense, sense that maybe I should not be wanting this to feeling like his work had been done from <laughs> the story because it's very much Mar- Marin's story and in, in, in many ways too. But, uh, uh, but no, I, I mean, I like this film a lot though. I mean, just, just the individual, a lot of individual sequences have really stuck with me and, and found kind of haunting and, and, you know, just the, the feel of it and not, not to be too, you know, zoomer about it as I, as I so often am, but it's, but it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 it's definitely, it's, it's a mood, you know, it's definitely a, a mood film. And you Did can this kind of film give you the feels? This. Aren't you trying to say vibe, Keith? Oh, all, all the feels. This film is a vibe? All the feels. It's a vibe and a mood. And, and, oh, all the feels. And, yeah, look at those, so many feels. Yeah, it's giving feels. mood. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, I'll be 50 uh, in a couple, a couple weeks. Um, but, um, uh, but no, I'm, 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 uh, I was really quite impressed with this. I, I think, you know, I guess if we want to get into individual moments a little bit, I mean, yes, Roy Lance as Sully is kind of amazing because he, he is terrifying, but he also has this kind of like weird aura of innocence about mm-hmm. him too, you know? Like he's I mean, I was convinced just... that he was going to be revealed as like a secret good guy <laughs> up until right. the, the, the end. Right. Well, not until the end, until he rolled up in the van, I should say. <laughs> the the role that he ends up taking is is kind of a classic good guy, like in mm-hmm. in the sense of a right. nice guy. I'm a nice guy. Like that's mm-hmm. that that is very much a, an archetype he's mining with that role. I I, I want to come back to him, but I want Keith to finish his thought. First. Oh, the, but the other thing is, I think I think the the scene with. Michael Stuhlberg and and David Gordon Green. Oh my um, God, it's so as, good as, as, as the groupies. These, yeah, as these strange like you know partners in crime. I, guess you, I don't know how you want to put it. Uh, Stuhlberg is, is Stuhlberg, man. I mean, Green's good too. But, but that's like, like C, that's like C to the year level material for me. Yes. That specific scene, I think Stuhlberg is incredible, and I think we just we need that scene to get a sense of just how extreme this can go. That if you just if you completely lose any sense of morality at all that you can kind of become what Michael Stuhlbarg is in this. In and this on scene. the complete opposite end of that spectrum, Chloe Sevigny's uh, one scene yes. too, sort of the, the opposite extreme of where this can go. Right. Of just like, I have to destroy myself in order mm-hmm. to, to do the right thing. I mean, that was the thing. That was the thing. And I think this is where I uh, line up a little bit with Genevieve on this movie is that, is that I, I like the older people in this movie more than the younger ones in terms of my, interest level. I mean, Marin, obviously an interesting character and somebody we can, you know, who leads us through the, the, the world of the film quite well, but I really loved the time that we spend with Sully, uh, uh, the, the scenes with Michael Stuhlbarg and David Gordon Green, and then later with Chloe Sevigny. And a plum scene with Jessica Harper, too. Oh, God, yes. I forget. That was so awesome. I did not know she was in that movie, and it was so right. fantastic to see the legend Jessica Harper turn up as well. I thought that all that was really, really good. So I, I kind of, you know, I didn't want to be like the old guy who likes the old people or whatever in the movie, but <laughs> but that's kind of where I landed. I really liked the time that we spent with them. And I, but there's plenty of other things about the film I think to, to savor. I think it's approach to, to genre. It's, it's kind of upending of, of genre expectations, which is kind of what he did a little bit with, with his version of Suspiria, but I think it's a little more successful here. And I liked it as a perspective on the American landscape of that period. Uh, the music is really cool. I mean, there's a lot of things about this movie that are laudable for sure. 
I think also one thing I like about it is when we say how far this will go, how far this will go. It's a kind of a amorphous metaphor, isn't it? Like, like you, it's a little bit about addiction. It's a little bit about not being straight, uh, you know, having having outside an outsider sexuality, but not entirely that either. It's just kind of this. It's kind of just about being an outsider in general. The, the '80s setting, I think, kind of puts everything in, into like even sharper uh, relief in in some ways. I, I I like the vagueness of it. It's a little bit about family legacies. It's a little sure. bit about you know how how your past can haunt you sometimes, even if you don't know your past. But all that said, okay. So remember when we when we talked about Tar, and I was like, but she she just lost my sympathy utterly at the Juilliard scene and never got it back. And you all said, what are you talking about? You're not supposed to sympathize with her. You're not supposed to like her. I'm going to go down a limb here and say. I don't think that this is a, a meant to be a great romance movie. I don't know that I ever thought of that romance as something we were supposed to swoon over or, or find convincing or, or be compelled by. I mean, I don't want to get too far into connections already, but I very much saw that relationship in, in light of the relationship in Badlands. And I think here they're much more sincere about feeling it, about believing it themselves. But they're, again, two very callow people who kind of don't like each other at all at first and maybe are not either of them all that well suited for for romance or connection but they cling to each other because they have this thing in common you know they're both young they're both eaters they understand each other but especially for Marin I just kind of got a feeling of this might be the only person I could ever have a romance with because this is the only person I've ever met who's like me and who will understand I definitely did not feel a connection to this movie as a great romance movie or a tragic romance movie or anything like that. It's kind of a movie about a, a pair of monsters, a pair of, of serial killers who are, as Keith said, kind of outsiders and, and strangers in the world. When you talk about that metaphor for being queer, for being a, an outsider, to me, it has very much a feeling of the only two queer people in a small town hmm. deciding to hook up because... What choice do you have and trying to make it into a great, great romance, but, you know, never clicking in the way they might do if they had more choices? I mean, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that uh, because I I agree. I, I think it is a relationship of, of survival more more than anything else. I do think maybe this film is being marketed as a romance a, a little bit. Um, this but, film is definitely being marketed in ways that have nothing to do with exactly. what it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, a, in 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 the way again of films being marketed as horror adjacent when they aren't, or horror films being marketed as you know, exciting, scary, jump scare movies with a monster when they're really like psychological explorations. Right. But I, I want to go back to what you said about this being a, a couple of, of serial killers, because like, is Marion a killer? I don't think she ever actually kills. And this is what I wanted to get into with Sully is sort of that first extended interaction we get with them. Like, I read that as the film telling us like this character does not kill this this character his scavenger basically and it sort of seemed like he was being presented as a an option to live this life without killing and then lee comes in and is a killer but i could be forgetting something but i don't know that we ever get confirmation that marin 
participates willingly in any of that. She definitely looks on during that kill of the carnival worker, but she's very upset by the discovery that follows that. So she's not like, again, not to get into connections too soon, but she does have this sort of like passive amorality that Holly has as well in Badlands. I mean, it sure doesn't stop her from eating that dude, and it sure doesn't turn her away from the relationship or persuade her to go elsewhere or break with him. And, you know, in fact, they kind of become more passionate and closer as a couple after that murder. I think it's fair, I suppose, to say she isn't a serial killer, but she's, you know, she's absolutely a an accomplice to a serial mm-hmm. killer. And while it may shock her, it also seems to kind of excite her. I, mm-hmm. I think that she is excited by his by his confidence and worldliness. And I think that this is, in a way, a, a vampire movie, you know, a, a ghoulish and, and gruesome vampire movie that really deals with the flesh a lot more than vampire movies mo- normally do. But it's still about, you know, creatures who are essentially predators. In this case, they have the option to not murder people. And, you know, she she still goes along with it and seems more or less fine with it. Do they have the option? I mean, they have uh, the option that that uh, Rylance's character that Sully lays out. Yeah, but he does it. But the, that's revealed to be a lie, though. Like the whole thing about the whole thing at the beginning, where he sort of where he he can kind of like sense when someone's dying and then sort of wait on it. That's kind of a reveal is kind of a bit of nonsense at the end. Yes, is it? I mean, yeah. I don't know. I, think I didn't it's catch a, that. Where, where did you see that, Scott? I don't know. I, th- I, I I mean, he certainly like is revealed to be a bad guy. You yeah, know, but, but I thought, but I, th- I thought, I thought that that maybe, I, maybe I'm. I mean, he does try to kill at the end, but that seems. I thought maybe I took that as kind of like out of character. I think, I think that character is, I think being a kind of human vulture, <laughs> circling the dying, kind of fits that character. But you know, it? it's a much more ethical way of of mm-hmm. eating people than straight up murdering them. You know, just like having that ability to sense when they're going to, to die and then and then feasting. It's it's not a. Uh, there's a pretty strong moral distinction to be made between doing that and then and then kind of targeting someone and 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 you know murdering them in a cornfield. I mean, I I definitely took him to be you know presenting an option, so it's starker, it's it's highlit in a, a much starker way when we see Marin going along with Lee's murder and accepting the fact that he he kills people. I mean, she doesn't seem all that particularly shocked when they first meet and he's covered in the blood of a fresh kill that he invites her to partake of, if I recall correctly. So one thing I want to kind of get your guys' thoughts on as far as like Lee's kills because that kill was the guy from the convenience store right mm-hmm. that's what the, yes. and then the carnival worker was the other one and you know the carnival worker is revealed to be like a family man and that is like a, a big term but before that we have a like sort of longish scene of lee watching him from afar kind of like just being a dick to a kid you know and it seemed like they were like the film is trying to establish some sort of like morality or rule that lee has about like only killing quote-unquote bad people but also, like, I feel like that is all tied up in the question of how much they actually need to eat. Like, we, we talked a little bit how there's a loose addiction metaphor here, but like, you know, as opposed to something like vampirism, I don't think we get any indicator that like eaters can't survive if they don't eat. In Ann Arbor, they seem to be perfectly healthy, not 
eating like yeah. the whole like the whole let's let's be humans for a while thing it, it seems like they can live this existence without right eating. so that like undercuts any sort of like ethics that lee has when they first meet though lee gives her a whole speech about how like now that she's started it's going to be something that she needs to do or she's going to die how it's it's mm-hmm. going to get because she kind of underlines the fact that she's 18 and she's gone this long without eating much human flesh Mm -hmm. and he tells her that it's just going to get worse and worse like the older she gets uh and and she's going to have to do it and have to do it more and more often Mm, whether the live like humans thing means he was lying about that or he was just speaking from his own cravings uh is i think not something we fully get clarity on this is adapted from a novel a a ya novel which i haven't read by camille DeAngelis, and in that we last episode we referenced the interview that the screenwriter david kajanik recently did with film spotting and there's a really interesting detail which everyone listening should go listen to this interview it's it's pretty interesting but he talks about adaptation in general and what it's like to work with authors and what it's like to adapt a film but he talks about how deangelis told him there was one subtext that she really had to have in the movie that was just central to her conception of what this work was all about and he could not lose and that was veganism <laughs> and I've been thinking about that ever since because I, I don't I don't see it. But you know she has a, I haven't read it. She has a whole essay on her website about about veganism and, and cannibalism and why a vegan would write write this book. So you know, I, and and honestly, I, I think you can. That's a layer you can add in there uh, if you want. I think that's part of why this film is effective. Is like, sure, it's about veganism too. Let's just throw that into the mix. You know, <laughs> it reminds me of the, I'm reminded of that the Simpsons propaganda video where it's like this: this cow will kill you and everyone you care about. <laughs> um, how is that even worked in? I mean, other than just implied by the whole as just being more of a vegan friendly movie somehow. I mean, the whole movie is about consumption and the price that you pay for eating meat, like the the price mm-hmm. that you set for yourself in terms of how far you're willing to go for it, like whether you consider the ethical question or not. The moral uh, I, compromise. Yeah. yeah the, and the fact that there are still levels and degrees of it. But in the end, there's not that much separating uh, Marin and Lee from Sully, from Michael Stuhlbarg and, and David Gordon Green's characters, Brad and Jake. There's, when it comes right down to it, uh, no matter who's eating and, and what they did to get it, it's portrayed as pretty disgusting. You know, the, the fact that... They drive away from that cornfield kill just soaked in blood and are making no effort whatsoever to clean it up, I think is pretty significant. The fact that this movie is not like horror movie gory in most senses, but it does just completely leave the characters soaked in blood literally every time they eat. That seems significant from a vegan point of view. Yeah. Just like this, this is it's a big symbol. Here is DeAngelis's part of DeAngelis's essay, and it's pretty persuasive. I think it's here, here. She's referring to the book, not the film. But here's the thing about Marin, my anti-heroine. She quote does the bad thing despite her very best intentions. She wants real friends and a real home, real love. But this horrible compulsion traps her in an endless cycle of devouring and remorse. It's our best intention to nourish our families when we sit down to a meal together, and yet we prepare and serve the food with little. If any thought given to who that food used to be, whom it was taken from, how many beans had to suffer for your steak, your wings, your macaroni and cheese. You just want to feed your children, right? Well, so do they. 
boy, that's heavy. Uh, it, it is very much baked into the meat of this movie, uh, <laughs> I have to say. But it's certainly a heavy thing to be considering about, like what's what feels like a story about what feels like a monster movie in some ways and a romance movie in some ways and a coming of age movie in some ways like that is a big uh heavy harsh theme that i i definitely can see where she's coming from well I, i'm glad that we've talked about the vegan uh component of bones and all because I, I i have a feeling that's one thing that is not coming up uh during connections uh so we'll be right back to make some of those I was the only one. Are there lots of us? Not lots, but more, more than you'd think. You've met a few, sure, that you know of. You never had anyone take an interest in you? A double, 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 double take? <laughs> just always thought. You just thought some people are creepy. It's better if we all steer clear of one another. We're dangerous to non-eaters, but we can hurt one another just as bad. I hope you're hearing me on this. Now it's time for Connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Uh, Tasha, I, for, uh, this was your idea, right? These these two Pairing these two films because you had seen this one, the Bones and All, at fantastic fest is that right uh it was my idea that we should take up bones and all because i i kind of thought that you specifically would dig it and it might be a rare case where we were both in accordance in part because it is such a badlands like film and you're such a lover of that movie and of, of malik and in part because it it combines you know some of your favorite things including uh, gory gory violence and uh just like <laughs> imagistic imagistic filmmaking and also in some cases like the the kind of like long sitting with a thought or a mood that i associate with a lot of the oh. movies that you love Pleasure, like, you're, thinking, you're thinking of me That's this so feels nice. a little bit like nomad nomad land with a whole lot more corpse eating <laughs> okay <laughs> but i i'm not sure whether i was the one that suggested badlands i kind of feel like i wasn't no, uh and, yeah well we were because you were the only one that had seen it you were like it's kind of like bonnie and clyde but not really i, and so, I think so i may I, have just said it's a young lovers on the run movie right and, and, and so i was said, like what about badlands and, and then i was it, immediately like that's exactly that's it. It. Yeah. yeah yeah good job so. good job everyone <laughs> so we know one our process uh, uh tasha do you want to start us off with the connection here yeah, I just wanted to talk about both of these movies' use of voiceover, because voiceover is such a, a signature for Malik that it's become almost a, a joke. You know, the by the time you get around to Knight of Cups and it's just wall to wall, somebody like whispering ASMR style in your ear about the world. Uh, it, it just feels more like an in-joke than anything else. But in, in Badlands, that idea was pretty young and unformed, and it's something he was kind of experimenting with. Sissy Spacex voice in your ear just kind of telling you what you're seeing on screen and what it means in a way that you might not access if you were just watching the images like you you might be tempted to take this relationship as something deeper and more old school cinematic more bonnie and clyde like if you didn't have her voice constantly reminding you that 
she's very young and, and very naive and not really taking in the, the consequences of what she's experiencing in a way that a, an older or more mature character might. So I find it really ironic and funny that Bones and All, which just seems in so many ways to owe so much to Malick and, and Badlands, has its own form of voiceover. But it's not the main character constantly whispering in your ear about what she thinks and feels. It's Andre Holland as her father explaining her history to her through this audio tape that he leaves for her, which she rations out to herself in a cinematic device that uh, there, if it was done less well, I would find it uh, like artificial and annoying. I'm usually not a big fan of voiceover. But the way she holds on to this tape as the last remnant of her relationship with her father, and is this kind of Pandora's box filled with truths that kind of horrify her and that that shed more light on who she is and who she was. The way she kind of doles it out to herself, like both a special little treat and like something she has to brace herself to face every time. And the way it weaves itself into the structure of the movie and becomes this sort of careful parsing out of information, but also leaves you with these just beautiful images of like her on the bus listening to a little segment of this tape and, and getting a little more of the story, for instance. I loved that aspect of it. I, I think that just the way these movies both use voiceover is very different tonally and, and structurally and, and conceptually. But the fact that they both have that in common, uh, I think it's just kind of fun. I find it really interesting that you read it. And, and to be clear, I don't think there is a, a right or wrong way to read it. But I, I find it interesting that you saw that as her actually doling that tape out to herself little little by little rather than the, that just being how the film presented it to us because I kind of saw it as something that she was listening to over and over and over mm. again obsessively and we were just dropping in with her you know as, sort of as a, a filmmaking narration technique um, I think it either way it works you know um, like I said I don't think there's a right or wrong way to read that but it does you know color the character's journey a little differently I think Ooh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I completely agree with Genevieve's kind of read on on it on that the action. I, I feel like she would have listened to the tape in, in full, and that we're in that the film is parsing that out that narration, you know, to places that, that we need it. And then you know, because then you get to the, that moment where she finally destroys the tape, and and mm -hmm. uh, and I think it, I think it's certainly implied not that she has reached the end of that tape for the first time, but that that she is letting go of this. You know, I mean, she needs to destroy it. I think she goes back to the tape because she needs to have that sense of protection of that, you know, that's, that, that is what all that she has left of her father. And, and uh, surely there's a certain amount of comfort uh, to that um, because, you know, he'd been protecting her for so long. Ta um, Tasha, I saw it your way. Ooh. I, this yeah. is this is a rare case where I I don't feel that one of those answers is is right or wrong. I, I think that that's a really cool interpretation. I want to keep it my way because I like the interiority of, as I say, you know, both, both bracing herself and like looking forward to to the next little bit of it. But I, I agree that there's no evidence, and it it would make a lot of sense if she's listening to this tape over and over. But Keith, I appreciate the support. <laughs> I want to stick up for. Malik's narration throughout uh, his career a little bit here and actually the, one of my favorite things I ever did at the Dissolve was a video with uh, uh, Kevin B that Kevin B. Lee put together and I wrote and na narrated about the use of narration and 
and Malick's Malick's films and how they how it evolved over time. And I mean, I did. I, I think that you know one of the things about this film and then and Days of Heaven as well is that made the narration exciting is just is just being inside the head of someone who isn't a conventional person who has weird thoughts. You know, you know I, I think that one of the problems that narration often causes is that is that it becomes kind of a narrative patch in itself, not that compelling. You're not really getting, you know, uh, an additional quality. You're just kind of like, you know, gluing the film together in a way. But here it's a little different. You know, and also I think the other important point with Malick is that and with other filmmakers, Scorsese too, who uses a lot of narration, is that narration frees the camera. It free, free, it frees you up to do a lot of, a lot of, a lot of images because you're not kind of pinned down by having to uh, have everything in the, in the in the dialogue. But as far as you know, the Malick's later films, I mean, they became, you know, he would have you know like a chorus of narrators, like like in the Thin Red Line, or or, or his narration would get a little bit, I would say more philosophical or spiritual in a film like Knight of Cups, not, <laughs> not uh, you know, self-parody. Unnecessary, goofy, overdone, No, not at all, because again, you're, you're, you're getting, you're getting the, these extraordinary images. So uh, anyway, but I think it's it, it, the important part of, the important sort of relevant part of Badlands is just kind of locking into this perspective, this way of looking uh, on the world uh, that was, that's uh, from Holly that's very innocent and strange and kind of half-formed, that is an interesting perspective on the world, and, it, and it's all very um, poetically rendered in that film. Is it fair to say that the narration in Badlands is occasionally and, and maybe unintentionally uh, humorous? Did anyone yes. else find it? Oh, it's, it? yeah, yeah, no. Look at the part where he goes, he just told me to, to enjoy the scenery, and it's like in the, the dullest stretch of America yeah. they've ever been. <laughs> right. And humor is just like something I don't really associate with Malik ever. I. <laughs> I, I don't know. He just doesn't seem like a, a really like gag driven yeah, guy. Gag. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe. I would defer to more of a way home type, type, <laughs> type of thing. Maybe. So it, that's, it's that's an interesting element of the uh, Badlands narration to me because it is unexpected and, uh, like I said, it feels like maybe unintentional or maybe it's not like intended as humor so much as sort of like irony but because of the, the tone of the rest of the film it just like registers as is very funny i don't know which is to say uh bones and all narration not funny at all i don't think there's any humor in there no. but they're like all the all the humor in the film i think comes from lee pretty much yeah, not funny at all. But that said, uh, just shout out to Andre Holland, who, mm -hmm. while we were exulting over all of the, the cameos in this film, we kind of gave him short yeah. shrift. And I, I think he just does such a wonderful job with this this role that's just so complex in terms of he's not in the film for very long, but he has to bring across this pretty layered, nuanced combination of fear of her and fear for her uh, you know this this giant burden that's landed on him and his sympathy for her and yet you know he he also wants to escape and very reasonably so i think there's a, a worn downness to the character that he plays just from everything he's been through and everything he's suffered through specifically because of Marin. And it's just so common to see stories like this, you know, about somebody who escapes a, a sad or oppressive home situation as soon as they possibly can. It's usually not the parent who's the one mm. running away from home uh, with, with, with relief. 
The, the like years of weariness on his face are remarkable. I mean, it really does without, obviously you get dialogue, you get a lot of dialogue from him explaining what, what happened, but you, you can kind of see it anyway. You know, this is, this is someone who really can't do this anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that, one of the things this, these two movies have in common, one of the more prominent things is this idea of, uh, of the lovers on the lamb movie. And I, and I don't, uh, cause I, I think that both of these films, approach it that idea from a you know it, almost upend the idea of it you know because i you know i think that we um we see a, a, well we we see a lovers of the lamb movie uh, passion seems to be the driver of the action that that maybe the thrill of criminality like gun crazy or something like that where it's just like you're really the you know being together and and having all this romantic passion and committing violence there's a like heat to it that isn't necessarily present in either one of these movies, you know, because you have this sort of drift in this relationship between uh, between Holly and Kid, and then you have uh, this the relationship between Marin and and Lee. It comes a little bit later than you might expect, and it's it's ambiguous in terms of their you know feelings for each other because they don't know the degree to which they they can even trust each other or like each other or any of that stuff and so it, it, it sort of present these are movies that present themselves as being part of that tradition in american movies but both of them also kind of defy it as well yeah in really fun ways i feel like what defines both of these relationships more than than passion more than the sense of a great tragic romance for the ages is just the sense of poverty and desperation like there's a, a class element in both of these films that just really speaks to how few options all of these young lovers have. We kind of see that all of them are living in fairly broken down places and under not the best circumstances to a degree where they look on people who have more than them with like a sense of sort of shock and confusion almost more than jealousy. But these are all people who come from like working class, like lower working class, impoverished working class surroundings and backgrounds. And they just don't have a lot of resources when it comes to setting out on the run. Their relationships are kind of defined by lack of choice. And then their journeys are defined by lack of choice because they just don't have the option to throw money at a problem as it is. They have the option to sleep in the back of a truck or sleep in a house that they've made in a tree because they're just they're have nots. They're also all orphans to some extent or another, or at least without parent figures. But before we leave this connection, I do really quickly want to uh, jump back to the first part of this when we were talking about how it bones and all is not uh, really a, a love story. And again, while I agree with that, I do want to know then how you, Tasha, or, or anyone else reads the final shot of Bones and All, of the two of them naked uh, against a very Malachian uh, <laughs> backdrop, uh, presumably having just made love. I don't know. Like, that is what we are left with in this film. So how does that inform this relationship? I mean, for me, huge spoiler, if you haven't seen Bones and All, I don't know how else to discuss this, but I, I would skip over this bit if you haven't seen it and you're planning on seeing it. I think of that as Marin looking back on a more innocent time, on a brief moment in her life when she had something that she doesn't have now and, and may never have again, 
not because there isn't somebody else out there in the world for her, but just because, again, her choices are limited and she's not the person that she was when she was with Lee. She's not the person she was certainly when she met Lee. So there's that kind of sense of, you know, that we we talked a lot about the Edenic qualities of Malick movies and, and Malick romances and the Edenic qualities of Kit and Holly living in the forest together in this like little unspoiled place that they've built for themselves. I think that that's extremely nomadland shot of uh, Marin and, and Lee out on the prairie, just with the, the big open sky behind them, holding each other with their clothes on earlier in the film, and then echoed late in the film, is just kind of a, a reminder of like, they did have their own sort of little Eden, whether it was a, a great romance for the ages, whether they were right for each other. And that moment doesn't matter. She's looking back on something that she had that's gone now. And, you know, I, I think that all of us can have nostalgia for the idealized parts of our past, like even if those parts were not necessarily convincing to other people or necessarily the the healthiest places in our lives as well. I, I think also not, not to contradict myself, but I do feel like that final stretch is a lot more romantic. I feel like their relationship is kind of different after they're reunited and after she learns more about his past. There's kind of like more of a connection, a more... A more emotional intimacy between the two of them too so it, it could kind of feel like you know after that you know horrific slash you know kind of weirdly beautiful final scene between the two of them uh you know it seems like a a, a good grace note to end this on yeah i and i and i do like that reading of it a lot tasha and i guess i just uh bring it up here as sort of i guess a point of contrast to the way that that badlands ends with some very just sort of pretty straightforward narration like i got married to the son of the lawyer who defended me and he got the electric chair and that's it yeah you know like it doesn't it doesn't have that you know the, that grace note like like Keith said like purposely so like that's not a, a flaw at all but i think it does speak to a a strain of real romanticism not in the sort in the broad sense of the word uh in bones and all that is less present in badlands especially as it goes on i strongly agree with you there keith about the the feeling of the romance between them just being very different at the point where they've settled down in a home where they're not lovers on the run anymore to tag into the connection that we're we're talking about where they've made a home for themselves and they're trying to live as humans i feel like that's a they're growing in a maturity that kit and holly don't necessarily get to have when he says to her at the car i'm going to go back to this line again because it was just so striking to me he says you know it's too bad about your father someday we're gonna have to sit down and have a long talk about that and he's imagining a future for the two of them where they acknowledge things that they've never acknowledged before. Like they had plenty of time sitting around that they could have talked about him murdering her father in order to shut off her choices and, and send her on the run. And they never did talk about it. But he's teasing at a more mature relationship that he imagines they could have one day. I think Marin and, and Lee do actually push in the direction of that. And we don't get enough of it to see exactly how far they've gotten into it. But I, I do agree that it does feel like more of a romance by the end. So so Genevieve, do you have a connection for us here? Uh, 
yeah, I mean, I think it's something that we've already uh, touched on to some degree uh, throughout this conversation, so we don't need to spend too much time on it. But I want to talk about specifically Lee and Kit as sort of charismatic killer figures. Uh, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that they are both uh, pretty small men physically. Uh, Lee even has a line about like when you're 140 pounds soaking wet, you need to have a big attitude or, or, or something like that. <laughs> and Kit certainly seems to have a, a strain of that as well. But, you know, we also talked about toward the end where he's sort of charming the all the cops that brought him in and giving away way mementos and even that even before that in the cop car you know he's uh he gets them to say he looks like james dean you know he he does have the ability to turn on the charm and uh, you know presumably that's how he uh gets holly to begin with although their courtship is is very strange but in lee's case specifically like his charisma feels directly linked to his ability to kill again i'm thinking of the the carnival workers uh specifically there kit's charisma feels more like accidental like we already talked about how he's he's weird you know like uh but they both seem to be able to turn it on when the situation calls for it but they are both clearly like damaged men at at heart that don't are who, who aren't actually as appealing and likable as they are able to present themselves being i, I found myself thinking uh, uh perhaps unfortunately uh with, with uh with kit of, of the onion headline totally hot chick also way psycho which is, <laughs> <laughs> kind of applies to that character as well i mean you know they, they they both kind of project a certain sense of danger and that that's part of the appeal right i mean that, that is the there's an excitement that they radiate the fact that they're bad boys basically <laughs> they're very bad boys they kill yeah. do you uh, see how ripped lee's jeans are my goodness <laughs> <laughs> did you see how ripped martin sheen is as a uh, 31 year old there's a lot of shirtlessness in that movie that's kind of just about like look how young and muscular this kid is yeah yeah kid he was 31 like, like he was he's 25 in the movie not really a kid he's 31 in real life not really a kid i still think he plays real young yeah i mean timothy chalamet is 26 you know and he definitely uh is able to play quite young seeming in this too but uh yeah i think that's kind of maybe part and parcel of this weird charisma that they both have it's like they they present young but they manipulate uh, like a much older man <laughs> can yeah yeah he he definitely doesn't play as young to me as kit like kit there's a a naivete to him that partially comes from him being a sociopath but just partially comes from a feeling that we again we don't know much about his past but there's a sense of like maybe he never had a childhood or maybe he never grew out of the mm -hmm. childhood but he can still get drawn so easily into a dirt clod fight or you know pouting because he does something poorly in front of holly and she sees him and it just makes him turn on her by comparison I feel like Lee feels like he's lived in the world a lot more, yeah. maybe just because, you know, he's he's literally had to go out hunting uh, for food. We, we don't even know how long his entire life. And the fact that his we haven't talked at all about his relationship with his sister, who mm. he definitely kind of has a an older brother mentor like 
cool, distant figure who blows in and out of her life. Uh, she actually plays a lot like Holly to me, just in terms of naive girl who is very pretty clearly bored um, and sees him as just like uh, the kind of cool figure in her life who's going off and doing stuff where she doesn't get to. She's a, a fun character in a lot of ways. She comes with some some fun surprises. But in some ways, the way she plays so young makes him seem just a little older by comparison. Yeah, that's true. I was I was about to say that both Kit and Lee, you know, are paired with girls who are, you know, sort of symbolic of innocence to to varying degrees. I still think of that uh, that scene at Cato's house where uh, Kit and Cato are drinking beer and uh, Holly is drinking a glass of milk, <laughs> just very uh, drawing a very clear clear line there. So there is sort of this like innocence versus experience dichotomy with both of these pairs, which was another connection we were going to touch on, but we may as well just mention it here. But that's interesting because I didn't think of. Lee's sister in that. And she is sort of another element that maybe sort of amplifies Lee's sense of being like more experienced and world weary. There's a lot going on in Bones at all. <laughs> uh, one, one last thing I think we should probably touch on before piecing out of the connections here has to do with violence, so the justifications for violence in both of these movies, because because it's something that the characters, particularly the women, give a lot of thought to it, a lot of thought to like what, what, uh, what you know, the violence that, 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 that they're wit- witnessing and the violence to, to which they're somewhat participating in, et cetera. How do you think that all sort of shakes down? I think it's a pretty solid connection because I think in each in their own way, Lee and Kit both see what they're doing as necessary. Like with Kit, it's like, you know, it's us or them, you know, we need to do this you know, to avoid capture, even though I think he's taking, especially with that couple that he put in the cellar and and, a few other, and the, the rich man and so on, those seem to be like real, he takes pleasure in those. But I think it's at least as far as what he says to Holly, that's, that has to be done. And Lee sees what he is doing as, you know, necessary for survival. And I guess, you know, that's one of the mysteries of the film is like, is it or is it something else too? But, uh, you know, I think both are, have, have really uh, – the heroines of these films meet them at a point where they've already justified their way of looking at the world to themselves. Even if Kit hasn't killed anybody at that point, he's already a killer. I mean, in his mind, he's already fully capable of doing what he does for the rest of the film. And Lee has already been living this way for a while. I, th- I think an interesting contrast between them, though, is like Lee f- feels that he needs to kill to survive, and he seems to only kill people that he's identified as jerks. I don't know about the carnival worker, though. I mean, I, that's to me, there's there's nothing jerkish about that guy. That's oh, the but one. But we, that's we like, see him kind of antagonizing that little kid, though, like okay. just being being a snot. No, I mean, okay, that's, but come that's on. not a that reason for yeah. That's not a reason for killing somebody. I mean, it's a reach. It's, it's a reach on Lee's part. Like, I think we were supposed to get the sense that he is looking for a justification. Yeah. And finding it. And that's also a question is, like, you know, how much pleasure he's taking in that sexual encounter, which seems to be considerable, mm-hmm. too. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's another bit of ambiguity in that film. Yeah. And it's a question of, you know, whether he's taking pleasure in it purely as sex or whether he's taking pleasure in 
I guess there's a, this is a very thin line to split, but like, is it is it about the sexual release or is it about the control? You know, mm-hmm. is it about successfully seducing somebody into this moment and the power that he has there? Or is it more about the anticipation of a, a good meal? Like, it's a complicated thing compared to but it's it's definitely something that he's thought through that he we may not know exactly like where the all of the little levers and dials dial up to on the the range of pleasure of control and pleasure of killing and and pleasure of sex and pleasure of like a good fresh meal but he's thought about it and he seems to know whereas kit seems to just kill on impulse and then tells a story afterward about how he had to do it. You know, with, with the father, it's leaving the recording that says, you know, I, I just I want you to know he was antagonizing me when I shot him. Mm-hmm. Later, when he shoots all of the bounty hunters in the back, we get the story of how, well, it was OK for me to shoot them in the back, even though that's not sporting, because they weren't law enforcement agents who were doing a job. They were just people out for the reward money, which he bases on a a line that he says he heard one of them say that we never hear. So there's a question of whether he's convincing himself or he's just trying to convince Holly. Either way, he he comes up with some sort of story. And Holly is trying to done. convince us through narration, like like she's justifying for him. Is she, or is she just reporting back? Like I again, yeah. her her lack of interiority and kind of vapidity in some cases make me think she she maybe is just saying. And then and then he said this, but given her move towards like just weariness with Kit and with life with Kit over the course of the movie, and given some of her editorializing about God, this guy's trigger happy. I wonder <laughs> if when she's saying, you know, and and then he said he had to shoot them because they said they wanted money, and it's justified because they weren't cops. I wonder if she's already working her way towards this is what he said. I don't know that that's how I feel about it. I think at that point she's still like in the parroting stage mm-hmm. uh but it's also like kind of unclear nor does it need to be clear uh like at what point this narration is taking place like if it's simultaneous with the events that are happening or mm. if it's uh, looking back on it you know because I, I i don't recall any lines that indicate that she is like necessarily remembering this from a great distance i guess at the very end when she says she got married but i don't know there doesn't again there's no like real self-reflection in that narration (laughs) so it's really hard to tell to what degree she is i guess interrogating any of what he says to her in the moment good lord genevieve i just got done watching this film and now you make me want to go back and rewatch it and see is is this whole thing just like her deposition uh down the Uh, line to somebody who she's like describing what happens it's all in Uh, past tense gonna have to gonna have to watch it all again there's a whole story also in the the i married the 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 son of my defense attorney yeah. too, you know. There's several points along the way here. We need to, we would really need to know if we would understand what happened, you know. Badlands well, too. Get on it, Malik. Badlands too. Oh, before we leave Badlands, I, I had to point out Martin Sheen, Dayton's own, Pride Dayton, Ohio. Uh, we're, we're proud of our native son. <laughs> Thank you for that, Keith. Um, and his and his many many murders of people uh, who he, well, he justifies killing. He's been benevolent and things uh so uh you can you uh are the next picture show listener can can wrestle 
with the ambiguities of these films on your own time. Badlands is available on Criterion DVD and Blu-ray and rentable through the usual platforms. Bones and All is currently in theaters. Finally, it's time to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. For this particular Your Next Picture Show, we're going to do a, a cannibalism round robin, I think is what we're calling it. Uh, recommend various cannibal entertainment. It's just, we can't, there's just a so many. A buffet of cannibalism yes. stories. I love it. And so we end as we began with yeah, we tried. Uh, dad we tried. joke we level kept it, we cannibal humor. We kept humor. it under wraps for a while. So uh, who wants to start here? I'll start out with like a, a distant memory that, that of a film I have not seen in years, but I remember fondly, even though I, I apparently no one, no one else does. But that's Bob Balaban's directorial debut, Parents, uh, which I think went direct to video in, in the 80s or, or played briefly in some in some cities. I know I saw it on, on VHS. It's sort of a, well, what is this? Let's watch it. Uh, it is a film set in the, the 1950s uh, starring Randy Quaid and Mary Beth Hurt as the titular parents who are are cooking up something that uh, their their son only becomes grimly, you know, slowly becomes aware of their grim uh, uh, habits. I remember thinking this was pretty good stuff uh, and it's pretty clever. It's definitely uh, pouring on the sort of the high fifties, the dark side of, uh, of American suburbia uh, uh, elements of it, but uh, stylishly done. I don't know if I saw it. Saw it now? Who knows? Maybe I should I should revisit it. But but I, I was quite fond of that film at the time. Oh yeah, the secret is they're cannibals. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think Spoilers. we got that, didn't we? <laughs> Genevieve, how about you? Well, I'm going to take us briefly away from movies to talk about two other sort of cannibalistic centric uh, pieces of culture, one of which is a TV series, a, a quite popular TV series that you uh, likely have, have seen, uh, which is called Yellow Jackets on Showtime. First season aired last year and second season should be coming in the first half of 2023. We talked about it on a or I talked about it on a Patreon episode uh, on TV we liked uh, last year. Um, so I won't spend too much time on it, but uh, it is sort of a survival narrative told in, on two timelines, uh, one of which is uh, in 1996 when a high school a girls soccer team, their plane crashes in the wilderness. And we are led to believe that during their time there, they uh, turn to cannibalism to survive. And we do see early on some some glimpses of that happening, but the circumstances surrounding it are sort of the big mystery of this series. And it has not been revealed yet. It is uh, still pretty early in the show's run. And there's uh, another timeline in the present day starring Melanie Linsky, Juliette Lewis, Christina Ricci, uh, Tawny Cypress as sort of grown versions of these characters wrestling with what they did in their time in the wilderness. So it's a great show, very exciting show. If you haven't watched it, I would suggest binging it before season two. And then I just briefly want to recommend a podcast episode, an episode of the podcast You're Wrong About, uh, which is very good if you haven't checked it out before. It sort of considers people or events in the public imagination and recontextualizes them for us. And an uh, episode from about a month or so ago uh, was on Flight 71. It's called Survival in the Andes, and it is uh, the story of the Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 that crashed in the Andes in 1972. And the survivors famously had to turn to cannibalism to survive. 
this was the story of the film Alive, which I am not recommending here. Um, it's a it's a it's a pretty well known story, but I enjoyed this episode of the podcast for taking it apart from sort of the memoirs of the survivors and really grappling with how they felt about and how they considered what they had to do to remain alive for months in, in the Andes in the in the winter, and how they kind of recontextualize cannibalism uh, in terms of their religion. And it's an interesting way to think about cannibalism that I can't think of any other story that sort of reckons with it in that way. So it's called Flight 71 Survival in the Andes of the podcast You're Wrong About. And Scott, bring us back to a movie. Okay. Uh, well, I have to bring us back to the, the Claire Denis film, Trouble Every Day. Uh, this is a film that uh, was trashed by everyone but me when it was screened, and now everybody likes it. I always have to say that. Um, I actually recently wrote a new cult canon entry for it on our newsletter, The Reveal. This is a film that she made in the early 2000s uh, after Beau Trevis, and it's about the, the aspect is this desire to consume flesh is eroticized in a very Claire Denis-like fashion, and, and, uh, and it kind of, it, so it has a different kind of quality than than bones and all it's really about this um i guess sort of a medical experiment gone wrong or some piece of medicine that they couldn't control that some of the characters have have used this experimental medicine and and uh and they're trying to figure out a solution to it but in the meantime uh this recently married uh a person played by vincent gallo and also this wife of a, a doctor played by beatrice Dahl are uh you know they're feasting a little bit and it's a film of of startling bloodshed i think a lot of people were, were turned off by by how graphic a film it is but i think over time you know and, and certainly since people have gotten to know and respect denise work they you know it's been kind of of a piece with the the type of desire that she's depicted in in other films like uh like friday night and in uh, 35 shots of rum uh so if you're a fan of fan of hers I, I would and have a strong stomach i would definitely check it out because i think it's a really good movie uh tasha what about you well, you y'all sprung this uh, idea on me like moments ago, and I, I was kind of prepared to do this like big comedy thing about like all of the cannibal movies. I, I haven't seen uh, Bone Tomahawk. I haven't seen We Are What We Are. I did not care for The Bad Batch at all, and I can't recommend it. I was eventually going to land on The Platform. One of my favorite films of the last 10 years, uh, it's streaming on Netflix. I still think it's just one of the most innovative like science fiction horror films I've seen in a long time. But it feels like a, a bit of a cheat because it's not really a cannibal movie so much as a movie that's got some cannibalism in it. Although it does have the distinction of uh, cannibalism of uh, a person who is still alive and present for said cannibalism. Something it shares with Hannibal, for instance, a movie I do not recommend. But I was going to skip across <laughs> stuff like, you know, Cannibal the Musical, the the early Trey Parker film is very messy, but it's got its joys, uh, particularly with just like an early raw version of his musical comedy in particular. And I could say uh, some positive things about Delicatessen, the uh, Mark Caro Jean-Pierre Jeunet film, which also kind of sloppy in a way, but uh, just like a really weird, joyous movie. But while I was looking through all of this, I remembered Ravenous, which is uh, yeah. Antonia Bird's 1999 film about the American West and cannibalism there. And it, it's kind of playing a little bit off the Donner Party situation and sort of the, the myth and legend of that 
and how it's kind of come down to us as this sort of true American horror story. Guy Pearce and Robert Carlyle star in this movie. David Arquette's in it. Jeffrey Jones is in it, uh, of all people. It's a strange thing to to look back on as a, a movie from 1999, like full of figures you don't see enough of anymore. And then there's also Jeffrey Jones who's in it. <laughs> But the... We probably see it enough. Yeah, I I would say so. screen stuff is not so great. The elements of this story, you know, it's it's a very... It's an an indie cannibal Western. It's pretty raw in some places. It's it's pretty shoestringy in some places. But the structure of it is pretty interesting. And the discoveries that you make over time about what cannibalism is and, and what it means in what becomes almost as much of a, a fantasy fairy tale story as a, a horror story, I think are, are really interesting. And then just kind of the choices, the ethical and moral choices that it gets into about cannibalism and survival, I think go really well with Bones and All. I think you could plausibly convince yourself that they're set in the same universe. Uh, I think that you could plausibly convince yourself that they they make a good double. But also, I just remember it as uh, a really surprising fun time and uh, a really surprising little cult film. So, yeah, Antonio Bird's Ravenous. I will throw that one up there. Another new cult canon entry. <laughs> oh, film really? That I, didn't li- I did not like when it came out. And then then everyone talked, you know, became such a kind of a cult favorite. And I rewatched it and appreciated it quite a bit. I didn't like it when it came out, and I am never wrong. I will never revisit this film. I will never <laughs> reassess my opinion of it. But see, now I'm, I don't want to revisit it because now I'm afraid that since I liked it the first time, I won't like it the second time. Uh, I'm sorry. I uh, need to just jump in really quick because Tasha reminded me of uh, something that I would never forgive myself if I talked about a cannibal TV show and did not mention Hannibal, the television show, oh, not, sure, sure. not the film by uh, Brian Fuller. We don't need to get into it, but I'm also going to just throw that out. Hannibal. <laughs> Maz Mickelson. We love it. Yep. Well, that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show, but we'll be back next week with a new pairing. Genevieve, want to set us up for our episodes releasing on December 20th? Last year, Ryan Johnson retweeted a TCM preview of 1973's The Last of Sheila, writing, quote, Fantastic 70s whodunit written by Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins, and pretty much the reason I'm in Greece right now, end quote. That was in July of 2021, when Johnson was indeed in Greece, where he also happened to be filming Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, the new sequel to his smash hit that introduced Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc to the pantheon of silver screen sleuths. We discussed Knives Out back in 2019 in relation to Johnson's debut feature, Brick, by way of considering his tendency to upend conventional mystery narratives. So this time, we're zeroing in on Johnson's own stated inspiration point to see how The Last of Sheila gave rise to the Glass Onion. For now, we welcome your feedback on both Badlands and Bones and All and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days, Genevieve? I am still the TV editor at Vulture, still not really writing much and still not really tweeting much on Twitter (laughs) at Genevieve Kosky. But I'm working really hard behind the scenes, I swear. Tasha, what about you? I've also been pretty quiet on Twitter. Uh, The Twitter situation is uh, distressing and tiresome, and I've already got enough distressing and tiresome stuff in my life. But, you know, you you can always 
try to engage me over there at Tasha Robinson. I am the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com, on and off trying to write more in addition to putting more on the site, also working behind the scenes. But you know who I hear you can read a whole lot written by? Keith Phipps. Keith, how about you? Well, I feel like I'm slowing down here at the end of the year, but but yes, I'm a freelance writer. I I guess I'm still posting my stuff on Twitter. Uh, when is this episode coming out? Uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if I'm still there. Are you on Post um, or are you on Mastodon and Post and, and Hive? What about I'm Peach? technically on all of them, <laughs> but I haven't done anything with them. Uh, but but you know, I, I write for places like uh, GQ, Vulture, The Ringer. TV guide, uh, very, you know, and also very frequently at the reveal, which is the, uh, newsletter that Scott Tobias and I do. It's the reveal.substack.com. And oh boy, do we have some good stuff coming up. Um, I'll just sort of Scott, let you to him tell you about that. Well, we haven't figured it out yet. Well, Scott, Scott, how about you? Scott, where are you, where are you writing these days? (laughs) Okay. Well, the the reveal, of course, please, uh, uh, check it out uh, and subscribe if you enjoy it. And you can find my work uh, on uh, Vulture, uh, Guardian, uh, New York Times, and other fine uh, places. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, you can find me at uh, <laughs> on, uh, let's see, a post at, uh, uh, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find me on Hive at, at Gopher Chambers. See a little tri- twist there. Gopher wow. Chambers is a Silicon Valley reference if you... <laughs> That was a good one. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so that's that's what that's. Uh, was was Scott me. underscore Tobias already taken? I think I just decided I wanted to be. No, it was it was something where I couldn't do the underscore. Um. Hive is Hive doesn't let you do the underscore, so it's like you know what I'm going with going with Gopher Chambers. Um, you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at Next Picture Pod. Get bonus content and open discussion at Patreon.com/slash Next Picture Show. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Next Picture Show.